This is the Deranged Story of Jesus podcast series. Hello, I'm Grace Smith, and uh, Mike Davis is around here somewhere. But I think we should go ahead and get started with the second podcast in the Maverick Minister Deranged Story of Jesus podcast series. And he can join us later. We're both very excited to bring you this unique, humorous, and often poignant version of the story of Jesus' life and time on earth. As always, we want you to know that these stories do not claim divine inspiration and are not trying to demean the writings in the Bible. We hope that you will enjoy and be enlightened by this one. Grace, (coughs) sorry to be late. No problem. I just figured we ought to get started, and you could catch up when you got here. Well, I'm here, so let's get on with the story. Great. I want to know what happened after Jesus' baptism and how everything started to change, like you said in podcast number one. Okay. What happened first was that Jesus went out into the desert by himself and fasted for a while. Fasted? What does that mean exactly? It means he didn't take any food with him, and so he didn't eat anything while he was out in the desert. Well, that sounds a little crazy. How long was he out there? The book says he was there for 40 days. 40 days with no food? That is crazy. Did everybody who got baptized do that? Well, no. But Jesus doing it didn't make it crazy. In fact, a lot of people in Israel's history went out into the desert and fasted for a while. Like who? There was Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and even all the people of Israel who came out of Egypt fasted in the desert. Well, how long did they do it? For Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Jesus, it was 40 days, which really means for a long time. It's not like they were looking at a calendar and marking off the days. For the people of Israel, it was 40 years, which means a really long time. But they didn't fast for the whole time either. Would anybody want to do that? Actually, even in our day and time, there are still a lot of people who fast for spiritual reasons. It can help to build mental and emotional focus, if it's done in a healthy way. It can also help to make you less self-centered by freeing you from everyday distractions and from constantly thinking about what you want or think you need. But in Jesus' case, it was not like he had much of a choice. God sort of compelled him to do it so that he could be purified and prepared to do what God had in mind for him later. In fact, the book says that right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit made Jesus go out into the desert where he could be tempted by Satan. Tempted by Satan? You mean like the devil Satan? Yep, that's him. This story is getting stranger by the minute. I am almost afraid to ask. But why would God make Jesus go into the desert, go hungry for 40 days, a long time, and throw in having him tempted by the devil? What does any of that have to do with God coming into the world in the flesh, God changing the world for the better, and God saving all the people from themselves? Well, and it... before you say it, 
Let me just say, no kidding, I get that it's complicated, but is there an explanation that makes any sense normal people can understand? Well, actually, yes, there is an explanation, but I'm not the one to explain it. So who is? Mm, Satan. Satan? Satan is going to explain this to us? Yes. Now? Now. Hello, dear friends. And you are my friends. My name is... Well, you know me by a plethora of names. The Devil. Beelzebub, the Prince of Darkness, the King of Lies, the Evil One. Oh, I could just go on and on. But for the purpose of our present conversation together, why don't you just call me Satan? As I understand it, I've been summoned because you're interested in hearing about Jesus' time with me in the desert. I must admit it was quite an experience, both for him and for me. But for you to even begin to grasp the true meaning of what really happened in that encounter, you have to know a lot more about me than you do. And, oh, I'm well aware of how you think you know all about me already. But you don't have a clue. You see me as this massively powerful supervillain. I am some sort of evil and vicious monster that lives in a fiery pit, commands a vast multitude of creepy little demons, and just constantly lays in wait to lead you down some kind of lascivious path to personal destruction. <laughs> and on top of that, you think that I use my evil superpower to derail the will of God and destroy the power of love. Personally, I'm not opposed to being thought of as being the mastermind and manager of all that. In fact, I kind of wish that at least some of it was true, especially the part about being massively powerful. But it isn't. You humans are so creative at inventing outlandish and complex narratives just so you don't have to take responsibility for your own bad actions and decisions. Oh, I'm not responsible for what I did. The devil made me do it. That load of bull has been around since Eve ate the fruit in the garden. The real devil lives inside your self-focused and selfish little minds and in your self-centered desire to control, use, and abuse the creation, other people, and everything else around you. I'm not the king of lies. You are. You lie to yourselves every day so you can justify your own selfishness. You're the ones who impede the will of God by your unwillingness to let God and the power of love direct your life. Me? I'm Satan. And my job is to confront you with a self-centered, evil, and vicious monster that lives within you. And that monster has absolutely nothing to do with me. In fact, confronting that monster is exactly what I was doing for Jesus out in the desert during our time together. Why? Because God in the flesh 
God becoming one of you and God changing the world for you meant that God had to enter fully into the same kind of selfishness and self-centered egotism that all of you live with every day of your lives. For what God wanted to do for you to even begin to work, God had to be completely like you. So God limited the God self. God gave up being all-knowing, all-powerful, invulnerable, and immortal. And yet, God still had to be God at the same time so that the human Jesus could overcome his power of selfishness and be guided by love. Frankly, I don't know how God actually pulled it off. But I do know that God is love. And I know very well that love can overcome any and all things, even me. Anyway, my job was to test the human Jesus. I was supposed to tempt him so that he would get in touch with his self-centered human desires. And then I was to encourage his self-centeredness so that he would try and use his power as God to bypass the human limitations so he could get what he wanted. So I started the test with his basic human needs. He had been fasting for a long time out in the desert and he was very hungry. So I confronted his hunger. I said to him, If you're God's son, you can just tell the stones to become bread. You don't have to go hungry. I have to admit, he did think about it for a few seconds. Then he quoted a line from the Jewish Torah about people not being able to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he passed test number one. And I was kind of surprised that he didn't just tell me to go away after that. But I think that even in his human form, God knew that we had to do this whole process in order for Jesus to be ready to face what was ahead of him. Next, I tempted his ego and selfish desire for power and control. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite human weakness. I showed him all of the kingdoms in the world. And I promised him that if he would just worship me and not God, he could have them all. I told him, I will make it possible for you to have anything and everything that you could ever want. I said, I can give you control of the entire created universe. But Jesus didn't even think about it this time. He just quoted another line from the Jewish Torah. You shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. He wasn't even conflicted about it. Actually, I was kind of relieved. I didn't really want him to fail, but I knew I had to make his tests much more difficult than anyone else I had ever tested. Uh, well, actually, if I'm being honest, I have to admit that maybe Job's test was worse than his. But that's a story for another time. Anyway, the next temptation was something that would challenge the very core of his humanness. That one was about self-preservation. I took him to Jerusalem and put him on the very top of the Jewish temple, which is extremely high. And a fall from it would be extremely deadly. Then I said, You're God's son. So jump! He looked at me with this mixture of fear and confusion. So I decided to play his game this time. And I quoted a line from one of the Jewish Psalms. Jump, 
and nothing will happen to you because God will send angels to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. Jesus just looked at me and smiled. Then he quoted from that same Jewish Torah book again. It is written, he said, do not test the Lord your God. And then we both smiled at each other. And I took him back to the desert and told him I was finished. For now. I left feeling pretty good about his chances of completing the task of saving the world. Although I knew I would have to come back and make him confront his selfish humanity again. Otherwise, he would never actually be able to make the ultimate sacrifice. So few of you humans have any idea what God did for you as the human Jesus. His life and sacrifice offered you such an opportunity for living a never-ending and amazing life. But so few of you even care. You're stuck in your small-minded and selfish idea that life, love, and the whole creation is all about you. I frankly can't fathom what God sees in any of you. But for some reason, God never gives up trying to get you to grasp the truth. But I guess I shouldn't complain. At least your self-centeredness gives me plenty of job security. Anyway, that's what happened. And that's why Jesus went into the desert for 40 days. And that means my narrative is done. But don't worry. I'm sure I'll be seeing you again. And again. And again. So goodbye, my dear friends. And remember, you are my friends. <laughs> wow, that Satan character is scarier than I thought he'd be. But he certainly wasn't what I expected. What do you mean? I mean, he sounded like he was on God's side against us instead of fighting against God. That's right. His name, Satan, actually means the adversary. And he's not God's adversary, he's our adversary. His job is to oppose and expose our selfishness and our refusal to be guided by love. I never thought of the devil that way. Satan isn't the devil. Our self-centeredness is. Jeez. I've got to spend some time thinking about this. Well, while you're thinking, I want to let everyone know that there are many more episodes to come in the Deranged Story of Jesus series. And there are a lot more people in the story for us to meet. Does that mean we're at the end of this episode? Yes, we are. But stay tuned for podcast number three. Well, then, to all of you, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.